Hello, my name is Lee Gatiss. I'm the Director of Church Society, but also one of the trustees of the St Antolin Lectureship Charity. The St Antolin Lectures were originally part of the ministry of St Antolin's Church in the City of London. The church itself no longer exists. It was burned down by the Great Fire of London and then rebuilt, but demolished later by the Victorians. It was the nursery of Puritanism in the city of London in its day. The St Anselm Lectures have continued in the last 30 years, however, and revitalised this area of Puritan divinity. We've published some of the previous St Anselm Lectures in some compilations that you might be able to buy. You can find these online, uh, published by the Latimer Trust. This volume, Pilgrims, Warriors and Servants, for example, contains uh, many lectures, but uh, Jim Packer's lectures are in here on uh, John Bunyan, William Perkins and Richard Baxter. Those particularly are worth the price of the volume itself. But there are other things in here too by Peter Jensen, uh, Bruce Winter, Ashley Null and others. And the more recent lectures from 2001 to 2010 are in this volume, uh, Preachers, Pastors and Ambassadors. You can find in here lectures um, on uh, Discipline in the English Reformation by Peter Ackroyd, Chad Van Dixorn on a Puritan theology of preaching, and other lectures by Andrew Atherston, uh, Peter Adam, and others. It's my great privilege to introduce you to this year's St. Antolin's lecturer. He is Dr. John Coffey, a professor of early modern history at the University of Leicester, and one of the global superstars in the world today of Puritan studies. You can find some of his work in the, uh, the Cambridge Companion to Puritanism, which he edited along with a stellar cast of those in the world of Puritanism today and Puritan studies. He's also uh, published his own studies of movements and individuals in this period. For instance, uh, this uh, unique tour de force studying uh, persecution and toleration in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, and individual studies of Samuel Rutherford, and uh, this one on the Arminian Puritan, John Goodwin, looking at intellectual change and culture in the 17th century. He's going to be speaking to us today on leaving the Church of England in the age of the Mayflower. It is, of course, the 400th anniversary this August and September of the Pilgrim Fathers leaving England and Holland to travel to the New World in America. And so uh, he is a perfect person uh, to talk to us today about what motivated those people to leave the Church of England and to leave England for the New World. So without further ado, I will hand over to John. Uh, if you're joining us live today, there will be a time for questions uh, afterwards, and John will be joining us for that too. So I hand over now to Dr. Professor John Coffey. Well, welcome everyone. My name is John Coffey uh, and it's my privilege to give this year's St. Antholin's Lecture. My title is Pilgrims and Exiles, Leaving the Church of England in the Age of the Mayflower. As many of you will know, 2020 is the 400th anniversary, the quarter centenary, of the sailing of the Mayflower across the Atlantic in 1620. The ship carried 102 emigrants, half of them English separatists who had been living in exile in the Dutch Republic in the city of Leiden, and half of them so-called strangers, including skilled artisans recruited to help build the fledgling colony. Among the ship's passengers was the family of William Brewster, preaching elder of the separatist congregation. His two boys, also on board, were named Wrestling and Love. And I've often wondered what a boy named Love made of life with a brother called Wrestling. But for William Brewster, the Christian life entailed both love for God and neighbour and wrestling, struggle, whether with angels or with men. In the course of the voyage, one of the pilgrims fell overboard and was hauled back onto deck. One of the strangers died and was cast into the sea. Uh, according to one account, he was a proud and very profane young man. Despite this death, the ship arrived in the New World with the same number of passengers as when it set sail, 
a child had been born on the voyage and was named Oceanus. Unfortunately, due to two false starts, the Mayflower's journey had only begun properly in September, very late in the year. And as it crossed the ocean, autumn was turning into winter. After two months at sea and blown far off course, the ship landed on Cape Cod in November. During the bitter months that followed, half of the settlers perished, and they later referred to this as the starving time. The settlement only survived in 1621 because of assistance from the indigenous Wampanoag people and from an English-speaking native called Tusquantum, or Squanto, who'd been kidnapped by English sailors in 1614 and had subsequently visited London, Spain and Newfoundland. An alliance between the English and the Wampanoags was celebrated in a shared feast, the inspiration from the late 19th century for the American holiday of Thanksgiving. The classic account of the Pilgrim Fathers from their days in the Midlands through their time in Holland, through the voyage of the Mayflower and on to the foundation of Plymouth Colony, uh, is this book by William Bradford, one of the settlers of Plymouth Plantation. And I'll read you just a few lines from it uh, as he describes uh, the, the, the ship and the crew finding land. Being thus arrived in a good harbour and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven, who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. I was introduced to this historical episode very early in life from a different book, The Lady Bird Pilgrim Fathers. Uh, around 1974-75, my mother took me on regular visits to a local bookstore to choose a Ladybird adventure and history book. I collected volumes on Julius Caesar and Alfred the Great, Christopher Columbus, Oliver Cromwell and Napoleon, uh, and by the age of six was already firmly set on the path to my future career. Since I wasn't cut out to be a great military commander, I became an historian. Those who can't make history can at least write it. I remember being entranced by the pictures in this book, especially depictions of Native Americans firing arrows or feasting. Uh, and in this case, one particular picture caught my attention, and this is of the Native American Samoset walking alone into the Pilgrim village. In the half century since that Ladybird book was published, our knowledge of colonial America and its native peoples has been transformed. Thanks to remarkable research, we can now see the founding of New England from the native point of view. And in particular, this book, just published this year by David Silverman, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and The Troubled History of Thanksgiving, uh, provides a completely different perspective on the whole story. Alongside the traditional and heroic tale of the Mayflower and its settlers, historians place the tragedy of native New England, devastated by the great dying of 1619, 1616 to 1619, when as many as 80 to 90% of some of the indigenous peoples were killed by plague. When Tisquantum returned to his home village after his European sojourn, shortly before the landing of the Mayflower, he found it empty and desolate, wiped out by European disease. Here is a reminder of the dark side of European exploration and colonisation. A year earlier, in 1619, another unknown ship had sailed into Virginia with a cargo of 20 to 30 enslaved Africans. The New York Times 1619 project has presented this moment, the landing of the first slave ship in the English colonies, as the country's true birth date, the moment that its defining contradictions first came into the world. This revisionist history, in which America was built on the slave labour of Africans in the stolen land of natives, has sparked fierce controversy, and it now casts its shadow over the anniversaries of the Mayflower and the first Thanksgiving. In this lecture, however, I will be focusing on England and the Dutch Republic, and on the decade before the Mayflower, a decade that witnessed some momentous religious developments that would leave their mark on future generations. 
The transatlantic migration of the pilgrims was a result of an earlier spiritual migration. Before they left England or Europe, they had left the Church of England. Persecuted in the East Midlands, the separatists had fled to the Protestant Netherlands for refuge before sailing for America. In the reign of James I, this made them an oddity, but over the next two generations, hundreds of thousands of others would make this spiritual pilgrimage too. The 17th century began with a genuinely comprehensive Church of England, with only tiny numbers of Protestant dissenters beyond it. It ended with an act of toleration in 1689 that recognised a new split between church and dissent. In 1600, there were maybe a couple of thousand or a few thousand separatists meeting in England. By 1689, there were around 2,000 dissenting congregations, Presbyterian, Congregational, Baptist and Quaker, comprising over 5% of the English population. To understand the origins of this spiritual migration, we need to study pilgrims and exiles in the reign of James I. James, son of Mary, Queen of Scots and veteran of the Calvinist Kirk, aroused the hopes of both Catholics and Puritans when he crossed the border to ascend the English throne in 1603. Both were to be disappointed. The church James inherited was built on the Elizabethan settlement, Cramner's Book of Common Prayer, the Royal Supremacy, the 39 Articles. Elizabeth's Protestant regime had weathered the threat from Catholic Spain and the English people had acquired a firmly Protestant national identity. But the Elizabethan settlement was not without its ambiguities. It is a truism to say that it settled nothing or nothing much. And there was a powerful lobby within church and state for further reformation. From the 1560s, contemporaries began to talk of Puritans, hot Protestants within the church. Some agitated for reform of the church's worship, while bolder spirits, the Presbyterians, called for an overhaul of its structures, and a few separatists broke with the church altogether, denouncing it as a false church, a second Babylon. The Presbyterian movement was stopped in its tracks in the 1580s, and a further wave of repression hit the separatists in the 1590s. Several of their leaders were executed for sedition. Puritans channeled their energies into preaching and popular piety, developing a strain of practical divinity that was promoted in hundreds of popular works and recognised in the European continent as an English speciality. Uh, throughout the 17th century, numerous Puritan works were translated into Dutch and German. So in 1603, James found a church that appeared to him far more orderly than the Scottish Kirk where he had been troubled and lectured by aggressive Presbyterians. All but a tiny minority of the English population worshipped within the parishes, and like his predecessor, James was determined to crack down on both Catholic recusants and Protestant separatists. In the millenary petition of 1603, Puritan leaders asked him to reform the ceremonies of the church, and he met with them at the Hampton Court Conference of 1604, but although this would lead to the translation of the King James Bible, it was also followed by 141 new canons or rules, tightening the requirements for clerical conformity and prescribing strict subscription to the 39 Articles, Royal Supremacy and the validity of the Book of Common Prayer. This prompted the largest ever purging of Puritans from the parish ministry. Some 80 clergy were removed from their livings for a refusal to conform. Yet very few Puritans were willing to follow their separatist brethren in giving up on the Church of England. By considering four aspects of the Church, we can understand why this was so. Firstly, in matters of doctrine, the Church of England was clearly a reformed church. On the continent, Lutheran, Reformed and Catholic theologians agreed on this point, the 39 Articles, while less developed than the French or Belgic confessions, were still recognisably a reformed confession, more in line with Calvinism than with Lutheranism in doctrine. Even separatists like John Robinson, the pastor of the pilgrims who stayed behind in Leiden, acknowledged that the clergy of the Church of England taught many excellent things. When the Dutch church was racked by disputes over Arminianism in the 1610s, James sent an English delegation to the Synod of Dort to endorse Reformed Orthodoxy 
on the doctrines of predestination and perseverance. Second, many Puritans made their peace with the Episcopal government of the Church of England. It helped that numerous bishops were staunch Calvinists in theology and Puritan friendly in practice. Richard Bancroft, Archbishop of Canterbury until 1610, was a hardline conformist, but he was also firmly reformed in theology. His successor, George Abbott, Archbishop for the rest of James's reign, encouraged a strong alliance between conformist Calvinists and moderate Puritans. In the Church of Ireland, Archbishop Usher was even friendlier towards Puritans, and his Irish Articles of 1615 were more emphatically Calvinist than the 39 Articles, affirming the perseverance and assurance of the elect and rejecting baptismal regeneration. Some apologists for the Church of England, including the erstwhile Puritan George Downham, were venturing Uri Divino accounts of episcopacy, and some wished to realign the church by distancing it from Europe's reformed churches. But generally speaking, England's clerical intellectuals expressed kinship with the reformed, and the reformed in turn recognised episcopacy as a legitimate, if less than ideal, form of church government. In England, among early Stuart Puritans, there was no significant lobby for a Presbyterian reform of the church's structures. Third, ceremonies. Ceremonies represented more of a problem. Since the Vestiarian controversy of the 1560s, many Puritan divines had objected to wearing the surplice, and they balked at certain features of the Book of Common Prayer. The use of the sign of the cross in baptism and the ring in marriage, the churching of women, kneeling at communion. The drive for conformity after 1604 landed many Puritan clergy in trouble with the law. As we shall see, some were briefly jailed and others went into exile. Yet the enforcement of clerical conformity was patchy. While some bishops were zealous conformists, using visitations against the Puritan clergy, others turned a blind eye, valuing godly preaching above ceremonial conformity. And for conformists excluded from parish livings, there were ample opportunities to exercise one's ministry as a lecturer or the chaplain to a godly household. Fourthly and finally, on the question of discipline, English Puritans looked longingly north of the border to the Scottish Kirk, where Kirk sessions were proactive in disciplining ungodly members through rituals of repentance. Yet while separatists insisted that true churches must be composed of godly members alone, the great majority of Puritans took the Augustinian line that this was a Donatist error. The true church, in reality, was always a mixed company. The Lord's table should be fenced, with the scandalous being barred, but the parish churches should comprehend the entire population. Puritans lamented the lack of effective discipline in their parishes, but they were also beginning to turn some towns and villages into models of godliness. A great example of this is the town of Dorchester, uh, and if you read David Underdown's book Fire from Heaven, you get a very vivid account of the way in which Puritans tried to transform a particular town. Thus, while Puritans regarded the church as half-reformed in its government liturgy and discipline, for all but a few, it was a true church. It bore the two hallmarks of a true church. The word was faithfully preached and the sacraments properly administered. Even if it was somewhat lacking in what some Calvinists took to be the third mark of the church discipline, to break from such a church would be to commit the sin of schism. The clergy we call moderate Puritans not only remained within the church, but also operated close to its heart. William Perkins, the most distinguished practitioner of Puritan practical divinity around 1600, was also by far the best known Church of England theologian in Europe. Lutherans and Calvinists were not reading Richard Hooker, whose writings remained in the vernacular, but they were reading Perkins. And Perkins was no nonconformist nor a Presbyterian, Indeed, in the eyes of some scholars, he was so much a part of the establishment that it makes little sense to call him a Puritan. He was, however, closely connected to the godly brotherhood centred on Cambridge, where Puritan clergy were ensconced within the colleges. Above all, Emmanuel College, the leading Puritan seminary and the source of many of the early New England ministry. Its first master, 
Lawrence Chatterton, had been present at the Hampton Court Conference, and he was frankly pragmatic about ceremonies. We may and ought to use them to purchase and procure liberty by preaching the gospel. At Emmanuel, fellows had not worn the surplus in Elizabeth's reign, but Chatterton agreed to use it after 1604, while drawing the line at the sign of the cross in baptism. His successor, John Preston, enjoyed the patronage of the Duke of Buckingham and was chaplain to Prince Charles. Such figures also had strong connections to godly aristocrats and gentry. As conformable Puritans, they avoided conflict with the ecclesiastical authorities by making minimal concessions on ceremonial matters and admitting, if only grudgingly, the right of the magistrate to order things indifferent, so-called adiaphora, which were not determined by scripture. Yet there were others in the Puritan network who became marked as non-conformists. In some cases, this was due to the vagaries of enforcement. According to the Cheshire Cat theory of Puritanism, it could appear and disappear, depending on the observer. In Yorkshire, where the canons of 1604 were not enforced, the Archbishop of York, Matthew Hutton, did almost nothing to end nonconformity, valuing godly preachers who embraced the substance of reformed religion. So Puritans did not appear as a separate group marked out. Elsewhere, respected clergy who fell under the jurisdiction of a diocesan itching to enforce conformity could suddenly be stigmatised as Puritans or precision, so suddenly it looked as if Puritans were everywhere. Yet there was more to this than local context. Some Puritans landed in hot water because of a conscientious refusal to flex. They were less likely than their brethren to see the ceremonies as things indifferent. Operating with a strong regulative principle, they challenged the authorities' right to impose rituals and requirements that went beyond the regulations of the New Testament. In the unreformed ceremonies of the church, they saw the remnants of popery. Citing the second commandment, they called for the elimination of all the ceremonies and instruments of idolatry. Conformable Puritans regarded the most scrupulous nonconformists as weaker brethren, citing the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 on sensitive believers who refused to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Even if they were being overly precise, such weaker brethren should not be penalised. Yet many Puritans did suffer suspension or deprivation for their nonconformity. A case in point is Arthur Hildesham, vicar of Ashby de la Zouche, who was suspended and then deprived of his vicarage for refusing to subscribe to the canons of 1604. And there's a good recent book on Hildesham by Leslie Rowe. She notes his generally non-confrontational approach to the authorities, but also describes how he fell afoul of the drive for conformity in the Diocese of Lincoln. After he was deprived, Hildesham was still able to preach in Derbyshire, thanks to a preaching licence from the Bishop of Coventry and Lichfield, and he continued to enjoy support from the Earl of Huntingdon, one of England's leading Puritan noblemen. In 1613, however, even his licence to preach and catechise was rescinded by High Commission, and two years later, Hildesham was presented to the Bishop for failing to receive communion kneeling along with nearly 100 of his fellow parishioners. When he refused to swear the ex officio oath, he was imprisoned for three months and then went into hiding in the home of one of his patrons. Hildesham continued to exercise significant local influence and he was very well connected with the Puritan clergy and their patrons, yet none of this protected him from prosecution. The pressure on nonconformist clergy led some to consider emigration. Exile had long been an option for dissenting clergy, from Henrician evangelicals and Marianne martyrs to Elizabethan Presbyterians and separatists. By the early 17th century, the Dutch Republic had emerged as the most attractive refuge, both because of its reformed public church and its lenient policy towards religious outsiders. Catholics, Mennonites and Jews all enjoyed de facto toleration, though they did have to worship in private. In Amsterdam, 
John Paget became minister of the English Reformed Church, a congregation for expatriates that belonged to the Dutch Reformed Church and was thus Presbyterian in its polity. As Polly Ha has shown, Paget and his congregation helped to keep English Presbyterianism alive during the difficult decades of the early Stuart era. In the 1610s, another group of eminent Puritan divines migrated to Leiden, including Robert Parker, Henry Jacob and William Ames, who became a professor of theology at the city's university. These figures began to work out a congregationalist account of church polity, making the case for voluntary self-governing local congregations formed by means of a mutual covenant between godly people. They forged a middle way, adopting elements of separatist polity while recognising that parish congregations could be true churches. Henry Jacob provided a succinct definition of the church. It was a true, a true visible and ministerial church of Christ is a number of faithful people joined by their willing consent in a spiritual outward society or body politic, ordinarily coming together in one place, instituted by Christ in his New Testament and having the power to exercise ecclesiastical government and all God's other spiritual ordinances, the means of salvation, in and for itself immediately from Christ. There was, in other words, no need to tarry for the magistrate or for bishops. The godly could form their own churches independently of higher political or ecclesiastical authority. Jacob put this theory into practice, returning to England in 1616 to establish a congregational church in Southwark, one that fellowshiped with both separatist churches and Puritan parishes. Historians have given different names to this phenomenon, semi-separatism, non-separating congregationalism, but it definitely represented an important phenomenon, a third way. Congregationalism would become the New England way in the 1630s before surging across England in the 1640s and 50s, protected by Oliver Cromwell and defended in print by John Owen. But the 1610s also witnessed important developments among the separatists. Separatists took a very hard line against the Church of England, charging it with being a false church, a Babylonian limb of Antichrist, corrupted by popish idolatry. Since the 1590s, Amsterdam had been the home of a separatist congregation led by Francis Johnson. This ancient church was roiled by internal troubles of its own, including controversy over the fashionable dress of the pastor's wife, Thomasine, and sex scandals involving his associate, Daniel Studley. Johnson shared leadership with John Ainsworth, one of England's most learned biblical commentators, who used his contacts with the city's Jews to improve his knowledge of rabbinic scholarship. But the two men eventually parted ways, with Johnson taking some members to Emden and Ainsworth remaining with the rest in the Amsterdam congregation. As so often in church history, separatists often ended up separating from each other. In 1608, other separatists came to Amsterdam from the East Midlands, where they'd been harried by the authorities. John Smith had founded a separatist church in Gainsborough, supported by a prosperous layman, Thomas Helwis. Meanwhile, John Robinson had formed a congregation at Scrooby in Nottinghamshire, meeting in the manor house of William Brewster, itself owned by the Archbishop of York, for whom Brewster worked as postmaster. Once prosecuted for separatism, these dissenters could no, obtain no license to travel abroad, but by paying hefty fees to captains of sailing ships, they came illegally to the Netherlands. Here the two congregations diverged. Smith took separatism to its logical extreme. Crucially, he came to doubt infant baptism. Different factors were at work here. Having repudiated the Church of England as a false church, and thus distanced himself from the Reformed churches, who, who recognised the Church of England as a true church, Smith was ready to contemplate further breaches. He would, for example, repudiate Orthodox Reformed teaching on predestination. This was part of his realignment with the Anabaptists against the Calvinists, though it also aligned him with the newly emerging Dutch Arminians. In addition, Smith, like other separatists, was a radical primitivist who sought to go back to the roots of the first century apostolic church 
before its post-apostolic declension. Lancelot Andrews may have taught Anglicans to revere one canon, two testaments, three creeds, four councils, and five centuries. But for Smith, Sola Scriptura intended building one theology on the New Testament apostles alone, without reference to the Church Fathers. And because the New Testament did not explicitly teach that infants should be baptised, the practice was seen as a popish corruption. At the same time, Smith was accentuating the discontinuity between Old and New Testament, denying that the circumcision of infants in the Old Covenant supported the baptism of infants under the New. Infant baptism and national churches were to him hallmarks of a Judaizing Christianity. Instead, he intensified the separatist belief that true churches were created by voluntary covenants between believers. Since infants could neither believe nor make covenants, he reasoned, they could not be baptised into the church. This logic led Smith to the doctrine of believers' baptism. First, he baptised himself and then his followers. Interestingly, he baptised himself by sprinkling, not by immersion. Uh, immersion would only really become the, the standard mode among the Baptists from the late 1630s and 1640s onwards. But at this early point, that the early Baptists are baptising by sprinkling or effusion. After baptising himself, he had doubts about the legitimacy of his self-baptism, and he sought admission to the Waterlanders, a branch of the Dutch Anabaptist Mennonite sect. This in turn prompted a breach with Helwys, who returned to England with a splinter group to found England's first Baptist church in Spitterfields. In 1612, Helwys published The Mystery of Iniquity. Here he condemned the Church of England as a second antichrist, marked out as such by the practice of persecution. It may be no coincidence that this year had also seen the execution of two anti-Trinitarians for heresy, one at Smithfield, another at Litchfield. Smith was not to know, or Helwys was not to know, that this was to be the last execution for heresy in English history. But later historians have seen his work as the first clear statement in English of a natural right to religious freedom. God alone, he argued, was Lord over conscience, and men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. Each individual was directly answerable to their creator and should therefore enjoy freedom of religion to choose their religion themselves. Let them be heretics, Turks, Jews, or whatsoever, it appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. He sent his treaties to James I with an accompanying manuscript note, which still survives. The king, he said, is a mortal man and not God, and therefore he hath no power over the mortal soul of his subjects to make laws and ordinances for them and to set spiritual lords over them. John Robinson was a less rigid separatist than Helwys. When he moved with his congregation to Leiden, he formed a close friendship with William Ames and a good relationship with the Dutch Reformed Church and the University of Leiden, where he taught against Arminianism. Although the Church of England, because of its popish ceremonies, was still Babylon, Robinson argued that separatists could join with its members in private prayer, though not in formal worship. Order and ordinances mattered, but they were not the heart and soul of religion and piety. One had to distinguish between the idolatrous parish assemblies of England and their godly members, and between the corrupt order, ordinances and institutions of the established church and its doctrine. Never church in the world, wrote Robinson, in which so many excellent truths were taught, stood in such confusion, both of persons and things, and under such a bondage spiritual as that of England doth at this day. Yet, the Church of England had produced great fruit, many saints with personal graces and diverse martyrs, and it was recognised by the judgment of other Reformed churches abroad. Robinson's most famous statement, that the Lord hath yet more light to break forth from his word, was both an argument for further reformation and an expression of humility. In Leiden, the separatists enjoyed religious toleration, but they were discontented. They suffered economic hardship and cultural dislocation. They worried about their children going Dutch 
and feared a new war between Spain and the United Provinces. On top of this push factor, there was a pull factor, the tantalizing appeal of the new world. The English colony of Virginia was beginning to find its feet after some torrid times, and America held out the prospect of freedom of worship in an English colony 3,000 miles away from the Bishop of London, whose oversight to the colonists was merely nominal. So it was that these exiled English separatists began to plan for another migration. Not to seek religious freedom, something they already enjoyed in the Dutch Republic, but to establish a pure community across the ocean. Yet to make this dream a reality, they had to compromise, taking on board a motley crew of strangers with the practical skills to enable them to survive. And in America, they would have to negotiate and eventually fight with indigenous peoples who religion, whose religion seemed to them far more idolatrous than the worship of the Church of England. The story of the Mayflower has often been relayed as a heroic tale, and it does indeed have its heroic elements. It took genuine courage to, to transplant oneself and one's family across the Atlantic Ocean and to set up a community in what was called the American Wilderness. Yet like many later exiles from the Church of England, the pilgrims discovered that the grass was not necessarily greener on the other side. It is worth emphasising, by way of conclusion, just how extraordinarily seminal was this single decade of English and Dutch church history. 1611 saw the publication of the authorised version, the, Bi the Bible translation of Anglophone Protestant Christians for the next three and a half centuries. The decade also witnessed the birth of the English Baptist movement, and with it the first explicit articulation in English of religious freedom as a principle that extended to all believers whether orthodox or heretical, Christian or non-Christian. From this seed grew a major denominational tradition, and by the late 20th century, the majority of Protestants worldwide belonged to churches that no longer practiced infant baptism. In the middle of the decade, Henry Jacob formed England's first congregational church, pioneering self-governing congregations that adopted an ironic posture towards Puritan parishes. Here was an independent ecclesiology with a bright future. In the Dutch church, the remonstrant controversy would mark the beginning of the long war of words between Calvinists and Arminians. Last but not least, English separatists founded Puritan New England, setting up America's first godly colony, Plymouth Plantation. Although preceded by Virginia and quickly overshadowed by Massachusetts, it would be Plymouth that captured the American imagination in the later 19th century. Both the voyage of the Mayflower in 1620 and the so-called Thanksgiving of 1621 would be incorporated into the creation myth of modern America. Yet all this lay in the future. In 1620, it would have been easy to dismiss the Baptists, the Congregationalists and the Mayflower separatists. These were tiny groups, more visible in exile than at home, in an English population of around 4 million, there were only a few thousand meeting and dissenting Protestant congregations beyond the established church. While some left the Church of England by formal separation, there were more who left it de facto by going into exile. But leaving the established church was quite exceptional, even for Puritans. The vast majority of the godly remained deeply invested in the church and would continue to fight for it until the restoration, and in the case of the Presbyterians, until the Glorious Revolution of 1688-89. Remarkably, even the sects were led by men raised within the church and trained in one of its seminaries, the, the University of Cambridge. Francis Johnson and John Smith had been fellows of Christ College. John Robinson, a fellow of Corpus Christi. Henry Ainsworth had studied at St John's and Keyes. But that posed a problem for the church. Separatism was not a religion of the underclass. The fiercest critics of the religious establishment came from within, from its educated elite. Charles I and Archbishop Lord would seek to tighten uniformity and to clamp down on Puritan dissent, but in doing so they provoked a backlash that grew into a Puritan revolution. In the long term, English Protestantism would be divided into church and dissent. 
Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you for joining us. If you've uh, heard this year's 2020 St. Anselin's Lecture by John Coffey, Professor Coffey from uh, the University of Leicester, who's been talking about pilgrims and exiles leaving the Church of England in the age of the Mayflower. You'll be interested to know that uh, as in previous years, the St. Anselin's Lecture will be printed as a booklet. This is last year's lecture uh, by Matt Rowley on uh, toxic and intoxicating the Puritan theology and thirst for power. Uh, John's lecture from this evening is also being printed in this format as a little booklet that you'll be able to buy shortly. Uh, you'll be able to come back to the Church Society and Latimer websites to find out more about that in due course, alongside the, uh, the compilations of previous years, St. Anthony's lectures, which you can see there behind me. But now we have some uh, chance for people to ask questions. Uh, if you want to stick a question in the Facebook page there, uh, let us know what you would like to ask uh, Professor Coffey. Uh, and I'm joined here also by uh, Mark Burkill, another of the St. Anthony's trustees and I have a couple of questions to kick us off this evening. So uh, John, um, I was always taught if we're going back to Ladybird book history that uh, in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Did nothing happen between 1492 and the Mayflower? There were other colonies weren't there? There was one in uh, Virginia um, and other places too. So uh, tell us a little bit about what else may have happened um, between Columbus sailing the ocean blue and the Mayflower, but why also was it that the Mayflower caught the imagination, mm. as you told us in the lecture, particularly in the 19th century? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, there's a great deal of colonization that happens between Columbus and 1620. Mo most of it is by other nations, of course. You know, so it's uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish in particular steal a march on the English uh, and the 17th century is the century in which the English and the French start to catch up. Uh, so the English do establish a colony in Virginia in uh, a settlement in the Elizabethan era at Roanoke, but of course it famously disappears. So there's, a, there's a kind of mystery about why that collapses and exactly what happens uh, to the, the very small band of settlers who settled at Roanoke. But uh, the first English colony to be successful and permanent is the colony at Virginia, which is set up in 1607-08. Um, it has some early disasters, including a, you know, a major massacre by uh, Native Americans in the late 1610s, just before the Mayflower sails, actually. So that's part of the background. Uh, but nevertheless, it is the first colony. And, and Virginians tend to in my experience, be somewhat resentful towards the New Englanders for sort of claiming that, that you know, that, that Plymouth becomes the, the creation myth in a way of modern America, uh, even though the Virginia colony was set up there first. So it's an interesting question why this very small eccentric settlement, which is set up by a small band of religious separatists, why, why that becomes America's creation myth in the 19th century. Um, and I think there are different reasons for that. One is that um, New England is uh, uh, an intellectual and cultural powerhouse. So it shapes a lot of the, the stories and the, the narratives in the nation. You know, if you think of 19th century New England, you have people like Herman Melville, uh, the author of Moby Dick and Nathaniel Hawthorne, and you have Longfellow and Whittier, all these great literary figures, transcendentalists like Thoreau. So New England exercises a major cultural influence uh, on the nation, you know, a bit like today that the, the Hollywood, you know, <laughs> uh, tell, tells the stories for the, the rest of us consume. Uh, so that's one key reason. And New Englanders like Daniel Webster and John Quincy Adams say the Mayflower Compact and the Mayflower Settlement, this was a really critical thing at the origin of America. The other reason I think it appeals is that the Plymouth settlers were idealistic. Um, so many of the colonists and settlers who went to the New World, in fact, many of the settlers who populated the British Empire generally, uh, were, well, there's a fair number of riffraff among them, uh, but a, a lot of people are also very uh, ambitious, uh, ruthless. Um, the Pilgrims appeal because 
very, very unusually for a new world settlement, they go as families. You know, there are women and children on board. Um, and so I think as this, this in the 19th century, this is the way Americans wanted to think about the origins of modern America. You know, it doesn't begin with greed and ambition and ruthlessness. Uh, it begins with something nobler. Um, and I think when the story of the first Thanksgiving also helps them because if you know anything about 19th century American history, you know the Native Americans had a pretty tough time and were cleared off their land across uh, the United States. Um, whereas the Thanksgiving myth tells the story of the English and the Native Americans coming to agreement and collaborating, almost the Native Americans kind of giving over their country uh, to, to the English. So there were various reasons, I think, why the, the, the story of Plymouth and the Pilgrims resonated in a way that the story of the earlier Virginia colony didn't. Thank you. That's really helpful to, to see some of that background uh, to that, particularly since people will be celebrating this uh, September and October, I think, uh, the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower. Mark, I wonder if you had a follow up question as well. You need to unmute yourself. Yeah, from, okay. uh, I thought I might have to type. OK, I would type. Um, yes. Just to, just to go back to Cade, back in England, rather than America, 1610 to 1620, was there an increasing um, pressure to conform from the hierarchy of the establishment? Or was, were all these sort of developments you outlined, particularly at the end, were they something that was sort of bubbling away and, and came up? Or was it the increasing pressure to conform which triggered some of these things? Well, there is definitely increasing pressure to conform in the early years of James's reign. So, as I said, Puritans are initially very hopeful. They present this millenary petition to the king. They have a meeting with the king at Hampton Court. But it soon becomes clear that James is fairly impatient of Puritans. And actually, I think he tends to confuse when he says Puritans, he often means Presbyterians. So he's had a lot of bad experiences with very insistent reformed clergy in Scotland who have tugged him by the sleeve and put him in his place and told him that you know, Christ is Lord of the church, he's not. Um, and so he, he, he has this lifelong paranoia really about, about Puritanism. And there is a real uh, attempt to enforce conformity with the canons of 1604. So there is this initial purging of the ministry with about 80 Puritan clergy being deprived but then I think most historians would think that thereafter, in the second decade of James's reign, he's not being particularly hardline against uh, the Puritans. Um, so in, in some ways, this has been driven by, if you like, internal developments within English Puritanism uh, and by, by the scrupulosity of nonconformists, but also by the way in which ecclesiology is being rethought, the way people are rethinking church polity and how the church should be governed. Um, and of course, the Dutch Republic provides this site of experiment, you know, of refuge, but also somewhere where you can go and try out new models of what the church should be like. Uh, you know, you've got a reformed church, public church there, but they also tolerate these English congregations um, so there's something very attractive to that, even for people who are not necessarily being sort of forced out of uh, um, England. Uh, but I think, yeah, the, there is this initial prod from the enforcement of the canons of 1604. I, you know, that, that is, is important in the first decade of James's reign. In some ways, the other turning point is 1618, you know, which I don't think I really emphasise so much here. But 1618 is the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. Yes. And of course, you know, nobody at the time knows it's going to last for 30 years, but um, <laughs> it's initially seen as this great battle for the future of European Protestantism, yeah. because James's son-in-law, Frederick of the Platinate, is elected the king of the Bohemians by the Protestant nobles out in the Czech lands. Um, and he rather unwisely agrees to this. And of course, then he's defeated in battle by the Holy Roman uh, Emperor. But it is seen by many... Protestants uh, across Europe as this, they see it in an apocalyptic context, as this great battle for the future, the very future of the church. Um, 
And from that point, James tends to, starts to back some of the more avant-garde conformist clergy, the anti-Puritan clergy, because Puritans are the ones agitating for James to get involved in the Thirty Years' War, to send troops there. James doesn't want to do that, uh, very resistant to it. Um, from that point on, partly with the rise of the Duke of Buckingham, but also William Lord and others, uh, the, the, the centre of gravity is starting to shift in the church towards uh, the, the, the hardline conformists, if you like, uh, those who, who become uh, the Laudians in, in the 1620s and 30s. Um, so that will then stimulate another Puritan migration to the New World in the 1630s, which is much greater in scale than what happened in the 1610s. Yeah. So in the 1630s, something like you know, 20,000 people uh, migrate from England to, to New England, most of them probably Puritans and Puritan families. That's really interesting. I think that I love that word scrupulosity that you use there. <laughs> the scrupulosity of Presbyterians, obviously a great problem for many people. Now we have some great questions coming into us from around the world at the moment. So uh, we have a question from uh, Dr. Jake Griesel, who is out in Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, and he has, has a question about the separatists accusation that the Church of England was a false church. He said, was this accusation against the Church of England as an institution, or would the separatists also have considered all ministers of the established church, however orthodox in doctrine they were, as false mm. on account of their membership of the established church? Now, you'll see that there's probably a current and you know perennial issue behind that question. Um, we're talking here with two Orthodox members of the Church of England uh, today. So was that the case in 1620? Was it that the, that the separatists saw all ministers of the Church of England as false because the Church of England as an institution was false? Yeah, well, I, I think there is some ambiguity among the separatists about this question. Hi, hi Jake, it's uh, good to have a question from you, even if I can't see you in person. Um, so, I, I emphasize in particular that John Robinson is quite careful to distinguish. Um, you know, Robinson definitely, I think all of the separatists recognize there are many godly people and godly ministers within the Church of England, but um, they all come to think that the structure as, as a whole is uh, in its polity um, and in its worship is anti-Christian, is popish, so, so they, they cannot therefore worship in the parish assemblies, but the actual, the status, um, the status of ministers is an interesting one. I, I you know, I, th I think there's, there is a spectrum even among the separatists um, that some write off the Church of England more completely than others. Robinson in particular is wary about doing that and wants to open up space for his people to pray with parish Anglicans, if you like, but, but to do that in, in private, in, 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 in formal worship, rather than in a Book of Common Prayer services, which he, he wouldn't go along with. Um, others like Smith, I think, are more, more hardline. Um, they would certainly recognize the godly character of ministers, purists and pastors within the Church of England, uh, but their ministerial status, I think, would be by by the corruption of the, the church as they saw it. Interesting, thank you. That's one that will run and run, I think. We have another question from uh, a previous St. Antonin's lecturer, Andrew Cinnamon, Dr. Andrew Cinnamon, who says, was there any logical connection between the separatists and rejecting infant baptism, something which was anathema to most Puritans? Why did that departure happen? Is there a connection there? Yeah. Um, you're from more of a Baptist background yourself, I think, aren't you? So. Yeah, I mean, I've got a very complicated ecclesiastical background. My mum was Church of Ireland. My father was uh, Irish Presbyterian, Northern Irish Presbyterian. We then became a Baptist. <laughs> uh, so I, I was, you know, you know I, I had infant baptism and uh, believer's baptism. Um, and my, my wife grew up Assemblies of God. So I, I think that gives you some sympathy for a, a fairly wide swathe, swathe of, uh, of Protestantism. Um, yeah, I mean, is there a logical connection between the two? Obviously, most separatists remain firmly committed to infant baptism. Um, certainly in this period, 
though from the 1640s and 50s, the Baptists do become quite a substantial group. Uh, I guess if there's a connection, it's partly that once separatists broke away from the, the parishes and once they, I mean, some of them still retain an ideal of a, a national church, actually. They, they don't reject the ideal of a national church. They just want a pure reformed church. Um, but nevertheless, if you, if you think of it sociologically, I suppose, they have created now these voluntary communities. They've reestablished the Christian congregation on a voluntary basis. You know, it's people who've opted out of the Church of England and have opted into these very demanding congregations. Um, and you could argue that that voluntarist move, that emphasis on um, uh, not being born into a church, but joining it by covenant and so on, opens the way for the Baptists because Baptists then apply that voluntary principle to the sacrament or, or the ordinance, as they tend to call it, the ordinance of baptism itself. So that baptism should be something chosen, uh, not something that is just uh, done to you as it were. So I think may maybe there's a kind of sociological connection there, but the move that John Smith makes was uh, yeah, anathematized by other separatists. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he really does, you know, go out on a limb, even by separatist standards, uh, when he baptizes himself in the, in the late 1600s. Mm. Yeah. We also have a question from uh, James Bremner, who uh, thanks you for your lecture and says, could you comment further on the statement on religious liberty? It seems a very radical statement without much precedent. I think he's talking about Helwis, yeah, um, yeah. including toleration for Islam, if I understood mm. correctly, uh, says James. Were there any prior statements which argued, for example, for liberty for all Christian groups, but not for other groups? That's an interesting question on religious toleration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly in English, this is quite without precedent, uh, Helwes's statements in, in the early, in 1612. Um, earlier Puritans had taught more, earlier separatists and so on, had taught more about Christian liberty than they had about what we might think of as religious freedom. You know, so religious freedom, the sort of modern ideal of religious freedom, doesn't just apply to believers. Uh, it, it applies more generally, and it, it's really, you know, was rooted on a kind of natural law, eventually sort of natural rights argument, rather than uh, on uh, the New Testament and, and Christian liberty. Um, having said that, there was some precedent in continental European Protestantism for, uh, for this position. Um, so that, you know, obviously there have been earlier debates about the power of the magistrate in religion, the Anabaptists, had completely rejected the idea that the magistrate could use uh, his authority against heretics. Uh, even Luther, of course, in 1523, says something very similar at a time when the Lutherans are starting to be uh, imprisoned and you get the very earliest Lutheran martyrdoms in 1523. Luther makes quite a sharp distinction between, very sharp distinction between the temporal and the spiritual realms uh, and says that the, the temporal authorities cannot use force in matters of religion. So that, that kind of argument gets picked up by, mainly by radical Protestants later on, by Anabaptists. Um, and then in Geneva, when Servetus, Michael Servetus is executed in 1553, um, that generates a debate with Castellio, uh, who's another human Protestant, humanist intellectual at the time. And uh, Castellio argues very strongly against the use of coercion against heretics. I mean, in some ways, actually, historically, it was slightly easier for Christians to contemplate toleration of non-Christians than it was to, to contemplate toleration of heretics. You know, a Muslim or a Jew has not been brought up within the church. And therefore, you know, the Christian magistrate does not have the same sort of authority over them than they have for a Christian who apostatizes or a Christian who turns heretic and starts to poison the, the, the body uh, the body of the church. Um, so actually, if you look at Aquinas and others, you know, it's harsher towards uh, heretics, the, the yes. position, the, than it is towards, say, Muslims. Um, so the, the, the really important move, I think, is this move that Castellio and others make to say that even, even the heretical uh, cannot be 
subject to civil punishments by the magistrate. The, you know, the, the church can try and vanquish heresy by preaching and so on, but, yes. but it's, not, it's not for the magistrate to do it. Which kind of leads to a question that we've had from last year's St. Andlin's lecture uh, and one of your doctoral students from the past, uh, Matthew Rowley, who's uh, joining us from Connecticut, uh, who says, um, could you give more detail on the statement that the pilgrims were not seeking religious liberty, but the ability to form communities as they wish? Surely, he says, forming communities according to conscience was considered an essential part of their conception of religious liberty. I'm sure you're used to having Matthew Rowley arguing with you in your study. So uh, what do you think of that? Surely um, forming communities according to conscience is part of what it means to have religious liberty. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly true. Um, and their conception of Christian liberty and religious liberty is not a purely internal one. You know, it, it's expressed in freedom of, well, as we might say, freedom of assembly, but in these very visible church covenants in which you create, uh, you create new communities. So that's, that's certainly the case. I think the big step for a lot of separatists and others is whether that freedom that Christians ought to enjoy extends to others, um, whether it extends uh, to the freedom of assembly for non-Christian groups or to groups that they themselves regard as heretical and so on. Great. Uh, I think our final question tonight, then, if you can just give us a brief uh, answer to this one. Uh, John Musson is joining us and he says, um, let me get this right. He says, the separatists went to America to be separate rather than any sense of being persecuted. What might that mean for us today? Do you, as a historian, want to venture an opinion on what all this might mean for us today? Particularly maybe thinking of those in the Church of England who might be thinking of leaving the Church of England today. Have you got any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think what, what, the, what the point is about the, yeah, the, so yeah, I mean, there is, there is this kind of myth, I suppose, that the, the pilgrims were sailing for religious liberty, um, whereas they already had toleration in the Netherlands uh, but they wanted to go and create uh, a pure Christian community, and in some ways an English community as well uh, in, in, in America. Um, what does this say to us today? Um, I mean, I, I, I think part of the value of studying church history is that you, I, I sometimes think it, it's a bit like listening into a, uh, a seminar but it, this, this is, I mean, we, you know, today on, on Zoom, we're, we're hearing people from around the world, which is kind of quite remarkable. Um, if, if you study church history, you're engaged in an even more uh, remarkable seminar in the sense that it brings in people across time, you know. Uh, and what I find really interesting about this period is that the variety of voices and arguments. You, you, you can see a lot of the, the sort of tensions that, uh, Christians still struggle with, a lot of the dilemmas of conscience they still struggle with, uh, many of the questions around church polity and how we should worship and so on, they're being debated out. And so I think one of the value of, values of studying this era is that these people work out these arguments very, very fully, actually. I mean, as I emphasize, even the separatists are highly educated. Yes. You know, so we, a lot of Protestantism today is, is uh, fairly populist and lowbrow. <laughs> Um, but the, these people, um, they do really think things through in quite a systematic fashion. They're all Cambridge uh, men, you say. Good Cambridge. Yeah, Cambridge. well, the, the, Cambridge, the Cambridge element is obviously to the fore. And, it, you know, it's, there, there's one or two from Oxford, I think Henry Jacob. But otherwise, it's very much a kind of Cambridge story. But I think that's that the value to us of digging into their writings is, and I think people are often surprised when they go back to this era, uh, just the, the sort of depth and the rigour of the thinking uh, about the church and uh, theology. So, I, you know, that, that to me is, is one of the, the, the things that's really valuable, rather than me telling you which, which, which of the positions was the correct one. I think actually the, the, the sort of exercise of um, following their arguments uh, and using that to deepen our own thinking, I think that's, uh, that's a really valuable exercise for us. Thank you. That's so helpful. It's great to have... Um... 
a, a very good example of a professional theologian, historian, uh, historical theologian like yourself, thinking through these things for us and presenting us with the story of what happened back in 1620, the background to that today. Um, I found it interesting over uh, the, the summer, I'd been stuck on a Norfolk beach reading Susan Hardman Moore's book, uh, Pilgrims, uh, about uh, new world settlers and the call of home, that it wasn't just a one-way street, was it, mm. uh, either? Just going over to the new world, many of those people came back, about half of the graduates of Harvard came back to England, about a third of the clergy who went to New England came back to Old England, again, eventually to the Church of England, and about a quarter of all the settlers who went eventually ended up back in the Church mm. of England. So these are interesting things for us to think through. Thanks so much for joining us this evening, John, uh, for your lecture, for the booklet, which will be out shortly. Do watch out for that, uh, everyone. And those who've been joining us this evening, thank you so much for your questions and for your interaction. Just to remind you that the video of tonight's lecture is already available on the Church Society website at churchsociety.org and also on our youtube.com channel. Uh, so look out for the Church Society websites, the Church Society uh, Twitter and Facebook feeds. We'll have all the details for this lecture and we'll try and incorporate this question time into that as well and make it available. So thank you to everyone who's joined us this evening and particularly a great thanks to Professor John Coffey for your 2020 St Antlin's Lecture. Thank you. Thank you very much Lee and thank you everybody uh, for watching and for the, the, the great questions as well.